Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora koutou katoa, na mihi nui kia koutou katoa. My name is uh, Angela Wilton and today I am with Ariana Stevens to discuss the topic of Words Matter as part of Sid's podcast, Useful Outsiders. This will be an informative, I hope, exploration of Oxfam's Inclusive Language Guide and its significance, particularly in the international development sector, focusing on Aotearoa's unique context, Tetiritio Waitangi, Tangata Whenua and Māori. It will be a conversation held between myself, uh, and I am the uh, International Development Director at Oxfam Aotearoa. And I am joined by the director of Reo Māori Mai, Ariana Stevens. We'll focus on the language guide itself, put out by Oxfam. And then we will focus on particular issues that emerge from the language guide itself and some of the issues or the resonance that it might hear, uh, that it might have here in Aotearoa. But firstly, let's start with introductions. Tinakwe, Ariana. Would you be able to share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Kia ora koutou, ko poutini ngai tahu tēnei e mihi nei, uh, no arohura tōku whānau, kei o tautahi tōku kāinga, ko Ariana Stevens tōku ingoa. My whānau hail from the west coast of the South Island, a place called Arohura, just north of Hokitika, and my tamariki and I have been living in Ōtautahi, living in Christchurch for the last 18 years. Um, as you mentioned, I'm the director of Reo Māori Mai, an organisation focused on helping people with Māori stuff, and really privileged to be here to share some kōrero with you today. Ariana, thank you so much. Um, in terms of, of uh, who I am uh, in this conversation, uh, no Great Britain o Kotipuna, i tai mai o Kotipuna ki Aotearoa i tito 1840. Ko Maki Rawa, ko Wilton, o Kukamatua, uh, i Tupuakeo ki Canada, e noho anao ki Tamaki Makoto. Tenakwe and Tenakotu to those who are listening to us today. I am the, as I mentioned before, the International Development Director at Oxfam Aotearoa, but I also work and teach at uh, Waipapato Matarao, uh, the University of Auckland, where I focus on gender and development and kind of delve into the complexities of power and intersectionality and, and international development. I am of Pākehā heritage, and I reflect back on uh, the arrival of my English ancestors uh, into Te Whanganui Atara in 1840 as part of Wakefield's grand systematic colonial vision, and what that means for how I show up in the world, particularly on these lands, uh, as well as how I show up in the world uh, with regards to international development and working in the lands of others. And I think uh, within that, uh, the role of language plays a, cr a critical part. Adriana, could you perhaps just share a bit about your uh, organization specifically in terms of the kinds of things that you do? Hmm. Uh, we work alongside organizations and individuals. It's, it's complex. How do I summarize it? I should have a, I should be able to summarize it more succinctly than I currently can. Uh, but I see it as we get alongside organizations and people, see where they're at, see where they want to be, and then help them take steps towards that place. So that could look like 
strategy support could look like tikanga or te tiriti workshops it could look like te reo classes or translations or just a a person to talk to external of your organization who can provide some insight or a place for reflection so and as well as working alongside my iwi Poteni Ngaitahu on the west coast for whānau development over there as well as uh, developing the, our workforce within our schools along the west coast. Thank you Ariana. I, I pick up on your words around I guess thoughtful reflection and I'm hoping that the topics that we talk about today uh, provide that opportunity for thoughtful reflection um, mm. and the role of language in, in that reflection. So perhaps in terms of the inclusive language guides that Oxfam uh, published earlier in the year, in March uh, 2023, it was a, in, I just provide a little bit of a background to it, it was a, uh, a publication issued by Oxfam International, so Oxfam is has offices around the world. Uh, Oxfam International itself used to be based in Oxford, but is now based in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, as part of the journey that Oxfam has taken to so-called decolonize itself. It was published by Oxfam Great Britain, and it got some pretty big traction around the world globally. Some were celebrating it as uh, a way of really diving headfirst into, into language and the role of language in either perpetuating or challenging systemic inequalities. It made some people very uncomfortable around the world, and there was quite a lot of intense media coverage of particular sectors of the media in the UK um, as being, I suppose, a, a kind of a 92-page guide of wokeness. So there's that, and we've been sitting with that, and I suppose when one's attempting to challenge systems and one is attempting to challenge the status quo and a status quo that upholds inequality, then perhaps that kind of backlash is, is to be expected. But I think it's important that we also lean into the fact that this, this is an evolving conversation. Um, I don't think it's ever finished. But in terms of why Oxfam International made the guide, just to quote from the guide itself, a big focus uh, for Oxfam is on inequality and in injustice and in, in tackling the root causes of inequality and injustice. It's important to focus on the systems and structures that keep people in positions of marginalizations or that face discrimination. And having a critical look at the language that we use and whether it reinforces or disrupts our analysis of these inequalities is an important part of the work that we do. So um, the guide itself is uh, kind of divided up into various sections. It starts off by looking at feminist principles for language use, and then it goes into four kind of main areas, uh, including disability, physical and mental health, a second being migration and refugee rights, and a third uh, is around gender justice, sexual diversity and women's rights, and finally, a section on race, power, and decolonization. So in speaking with you, Ariana, there's so much that we could discuss in all of that. It's a huge guide, and that was one of its critiques. Um, I would like to focus in perhaps on the third and the fourth, which is the, the issues around gender and the issues around race, power, and decolonization. But before we get into that, I'm really quite keen to hear what your personal impressions of the guide were, what kind of were the the thoughts that you had as you perhaps waded through it? I So I hadn't heard of the guide until 
Oxfam Aotearoa contacted me to have a read and share some thinking from one perspective uh, in an Aotearoa context. But my initial whakaro, my initial thoughts were if a, a right-leaning media doesn't like it, there's probably some good in it. And, and I think about the idea that those who have been benefiting from inequities it, it, it makes sense to me that they might feel some alarm at something that tries to correct some of that imbalance if people have been benefiting from these inequities and not being held to account around that. So that was before I had read the guide itself, just kind of looking at the the context that was sitting around it. And it, it was a kind of intimidating task to read this guide and think about it from an Aotearoa perspective, just from the sheer number of pages, 92 pages felt like a lot until I started reading it. And when I started reading it, I thought I've since shared it with all of my team because I think that the, the awareness that this guide brings to the different ways that inequity can play out in our society is really well done. It's really thoughtful, as it says. It's really inclusive. It's a very thorough resource. And so, like you've said, no resource is perfect. It's an ongoing conversation. But for a foundation to build from and to have conversations from, I think that this is a a great place to start. I think one of the things that I appreciated at the very beginning, recognizing it's not perfect, there are things that can always be improved, Um, but it does, I suppose, start out by saying that it is limited. Firstly, it's in English, um, and the fact that we're even having this conversation in English, you know, sends a message around uh, power and language. It also talks about the fact, and, and English as being a very central language of international development around the world. So that in itself, I think, is problematic. It it also talks about how many other organizations have done a lot of work in this space already. This isn't anything new. Um, And sometimes large organizations like ours or other big international NGOs tend to sometimes gobble up the oxygen in a room when smaller organizations um, or kind of grassroots organizations have been doing that work for so long in so many spaces. So I think there was a a recognition that so much has gone before us and this was a, a complementary moment to um, align with and support the reflective use of language while also recognizing that language changes uh, changes as per contexts uh, mm-hmm. the conversation that we have here obviously you know our our, our language and our our conversation changes depending on who we're who we're speaking to so recognition of context be it country be it person be it community uh, be it collective versus individual. And, uh, you know, we can always learn and do better every time we, you know, engage with new new issues or issues that come to the surface. Mm. And I think that was one of the uh, criticisms that I saw of the guide was that reference or acknowledgement around the guide being written in English and the role of the English language uh, in colonizing Indigenous cultures around the world. And Just to be really clear, that doesn't mean that we need to feel bad about speaking English or that the guide is written in English for for this message to get through to the people who hold a disproportionate amount of positional and economic power. 
English is the language that we need to use to talk to many of those people. And even for ourselves as Māori here in Aotearoa, most of us are more proficient in English than we are in Te Reo Māori. So we could definitely translate this resource into Te Reo Māori, but would that be an effective use of resource? I'm not sure. Having it in English means that the message can get out there and changes can start to happen, which I think is the purpose, as opposed to focusing on the language that it's written in. On that point about, I suppose, translating it into today or Māori, I mean, there's one thing about language, but there's also uh, about translating concepts. And sometimes concepts in English obviously don't land as easily in today or Māori, or, you know, Māori concepts don't necessarily have an easy translation in English. Was there anything about the guide where you felt in an in the landscape of Aotearoa where things just didn't didn't fit very easily from a Māori perspective? It's very literal. It's mm. a very and, and by necessity, it's a very literal guide. And traditionally speaking, Te Reo Māori and Te Ao Māori were was a much more poetic, figurative uh, language and perspective on the world. So from the outset that that literal and that's not to say we're not literal people as well but that's definitely a difference that if we were if I was to write something like this from a Maori perspective chances are that I would look to the natural world to find analogy to find metaphor to share these messages as well as or instead of the the literal focus that you see here the word uh, inclusive, just picking up on that point, I guess the word inclusive language guide, sometimes I have to sit with that phrase itself and say, well, inclusion often means bringing others who might be on the fringes into a core without actually challenging the nature of that core itself. In light of what you've just shared, I suppose, about approaching ideas and concepts through a different worldview or a different starting point, do you think that inclusive language matters and is is inclusion the right word I think inclusion is an important step on the journey to for us here in Aotearoa to getting to something that is based on te tiriti or waitangi which wouldn't necessarily I'm not sure if inclusion is the word I'm, I'm also hesitant or reluctant to give answers on behalf of Māoridom <laughs> and so can only offer my perspective as one Māori person um, in terms of what I would like to see or what language I would use. And, and for where we're at in our journey as a nation, I think that inclusive language is, is a great place to be at and I don't want it to be the end point. So I think that needs to be a collective process to figure out what, it, what we're actually moving towards and how we want to refer to that. In terms of the... Uh... I guess looking at inclusion and moves across the nation to be more titiriti centric, but often we see the word inclusion and and I suppose titiriti uh, used in the same breath. And I'm wondering if indeed there are sometimes the assumption that uh, in being inclusive, that's kind of uh, upholding titiriti. Yeah, one of the ways that I try and zoom out from titiriti because it can be problematic or challenging when we try and um, think about the the treaty partnership tutility and partnership is to think about what if I was talking about a a marriage a relationship between 
two people who decided to get married or enter a civil union or however they wanted to formalize that relationship between them. Mm. And if my partner said to me as part of our vows that they would include me in decision-making at points three, five, and seven of the (laughs) relationship, would that feel like an equitable, respectful um, relationship that I would want to be in long-term? And probably not. But again, for us, where we're at as a nation in terms of our relationship coming from that colonial thinking, this is this is a powerful point to be at if we do it well and if we understand that it isn't an end point, but it's it's a stepping stone. I I so um, appreciate uh, you sharing that point. I think many, you know, many Pākehā, and I speak for myself, you know, face a once we face kind of the Pākehā paralysis of feeling like we, if we voice something, we might voice it wrongly, or if we attempt today, or we uh, we might make mistakes. And I think what you've just shared for me I, helps kind of set some some guardrails to help along that journey for me as Pākehā in understanding the self reflection that's required, I suppose, within that marriage and what that might look like. And, and Pākehā don't have a, a monopoly on getting things wrong either you know I, I I often share with people that I'm working with that I get told off all the time by my aunties by my by my nannies that I've done things wrong or I haven't followed the correct process or I didn't include them in the process as I should have and so I don't let the fear of getting it wrong I don't I don't act with blatant disregard and just do whatever I want but I also don't let the fear of getting it wrong stop me from moving because Mm. otherwise the things that I'm committed to wouldn't get traction so and and I'm learning te reo Māori as well you know I've just completed um, a master's in te reo Māori and every single wānanga we would get picked up on pronunciation even at that level of learning te reo Māori so Mm. it's it's a forever journey for all of us and and we've got to keep moving. I'm keen to talk about words in particular, uh, noting that this is a, a, a language guide. And the word decolonization comes up an awful lot in the international development space. And I know that it's often challenged uh, as a term, sometimes a hol- hollow term that doesn't necessarily mean a lot. Um, there's been lots of, I guess, academic literature out there saying, well, decolonization isn't kind of a metaphor for social social justice writ large. Decolonization actually means um, the return of indigenous land and constitutional reform or, a, you know, a, a more intentional focus on indigenous justice. And it's used a lot in the as I said, in the international development space. And I'm wondering how you felt about reading that term or the use of that term within various spaces. I know often the words indigenization have replaced decolonization and the idea that decolonization focuses on the colonizer and centers our whiteness as opposed to uh, perhaps focusing on the importance of recentering or re-indigenizing space. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's an and and mm-hmm. uh, decolonization and reindigenization. For myself, as a as a Maori person, I've I'm in an ongoing process of decolonization and simultaneous reindigenization. And I love an analogy, as you will probably get sick to death of during this podcast. But the idea that I can only grow what my soil will sustain or nourish, and so 
for me what that looks like as an uh, as an indigenous person the re-indigenization part of that is planting indigenous seeds is learning te reo maori is learning about kaupapa maori and if i'm not doing a simultaneous process of decolonization i.e fixing the soil that i'm planting those seeds into then they don't have the same opportunity to grow or flourish so for me, I, I see both as being necessary for myself as a Māori person and for non-Māori people, I would, yeah, I think decolonization is incredibly important. I think it, it's one of the foundational aspects of allyship for me when I'm looking at what does allyship look like in a treaty partner. Mm-hmm. I think um, active decolonization personally and professionally is important. The term BIPOC or Black Indigenous People of Colour is used throughout uh, the Inclusive Language Guide. How does the term BIPOC land here in Aotearoa in terms of what you've just shared as well? I think Aotearoa, New Zealand, New Tirene, however we would like to characterise our nation, has a foundational document called Te Tiriti o Waitangi, which established two treaty partners tangata whenua and tangata tiriti and so for me I feel like that's the the relevant foundational language here in Aotearoa and when we're looking at BIPOC I worry I worry that having the eye of BIPOC as Indigenous could skew the perspective or could skew the conversation around that that foundational role of Māori here in Aotearoa and and it's unique you know we have te tiriti or waitangi which sets up things differently here so I'm also mindful that this is not this is not an area that I've studied extensively or have extent well yeah I do have some expertise in it but I don't want to discredit or diminish the work that's being done by other BIPOC people Maori and BIPOC people throughout the world but for me with us in Aotearoa I think Māori, tangata whenua and tangata tiriti is our unique context that we operate within. Mm -hmm. I think that part about language being contextual uh, as well. And as I read this, as somebody currently living in Tamaki Makoto, as somebody who who feels like they are, you know, they belong to Aotearoa, but also embraces some of the discomfort around what that means. But I've also grown up in Turtle Island, Canada. And so that's, you know, that's another contextual space where, uh, again, I think the notion of BIPOC has a different meaning uh, within the Canadian space. Um, So I read, for example, in the Inclusive Language Guide, it talks about anti-Blackness and um, that anti-Black racism is at the heart of global inequality. And while I absolutely, uh, you know, 100% uh, recognize what that means and the history and the layers uh, behind that statement, I also, I think, recognize what's spoken about here about an understanding of colonial history and how the legacy of uh, colonialism endures into the 21st century. And I guess kind of missing within the guide that that understanding of the role of indigenous dispossession within uh, that um, global inequality that that's talked about in the in the guide and that the amassing of wealth and the ability to I suppose engage in the international development space often through aid given from this country to other countries results because that's that accumulation of wealth has happened on indigenous land yeah and, and I, I would just I would just add the the stolen word in there this happened on stolen indigenous land which has been 
unsold for astronomical profits that have now now allow us to as a nation to be a savior be a savior mm-hmm. for other nations yeah built on the profits of stolen maori land absolutely and yet that's so rarely discussed in international development circles and i feel like that language what you've just said matters as we talk about that and as we engage with other communities you know that's such a critical piece to to what's represented in the work that's done in the international development space I think the other thing around this and the guide that I noted was the the use of the concept of whiteness or white as a as a descriptor, which is accurate. And for us in Aotearoa, I think it's also understanding the language of Pākehā, of Tauiwi, of Tangata Tiriti, non-Māori treaty partners. However, th- there are many different ways that we can describe how people find their connection to Aotearoa. And also that whiteness can apply to Māori in Aotearoa. And so it, it gets complex when, and maybe that's, it's difficult to capture that. And maybe that's why the guide cut it off at 92 pages. <laughs> they thought, you know, we've got to draw a line somewhere. But there are different aspects of the guide, you know, intersectionality is a thing. And so for us here in Aotearoa, we will have white Māori who... I'm not one of them, so I'm not going to speak for them. I know that it's an ongoing conversation. And I know that for many Māori, even the conversation around being white passing feels like a thing that's being done to us as Māori. Mm. The the weighing and measuring of Māoriness based on skin colour mm-hmm. is, is a byproduct of colonisation. It's not something we ever used to do. You've uh, mentioned in in a a previous chat that the idea of internalized racism, and I don't think that features much in the guide. I guess, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? I think when talking about racism, it can be easy or alluring to focus on the, the macro or more visible issues around racism. So the structural institutional stuff, or that really overt racism for myself as a Maori person, I've invested a lot into therapy and self-development over the years to come to an understanding that as a young Māori person, I had a lot of internalized racism, which expressed itself as lateral violence towards other Māori people. And so I don't know if that's something that fits within the inclusive language guide, but I thought for something, if, if we're talking about racism, then there are some different ways that that can express and and to be mindful of that, mm. to be mindful of how, and, and as a Māori person, I can still have racist thoughts and ideas towards other minorities as well. So it's, but yeah, that internalized racism for me as a Māori person felt like a missing Mm, yeah, I I agree. There's there's something about exploring the the multiple the multiple dimensions of racism and even internalized power or dispossession, etc., and how that shows up in the work that we do also in international development. It, that's very real too. I think there's something also about racism picking up on the work of others. You know, racism is also an economic project. Um, it's about extracting labor. It's about extracting resources. It's about maximizing land for the value that can be squeezed out of it Um, and if that's a measure of success how much that's being I suppose spread around the world 
as as what one should aspire to when actually that's just another form of of colonization in of itself and uh, seeing that play out in different ways amongst different communities is an interesting you know uh, point of reflection for me as somebody working in international development the interconnectedness of a global monetized economic system and how people choose to behave within that system which dominates so much mm. when we talk about gender mm -hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, one of the one of the sections focuses particularly on uh, women's rights, talks about feminism. It lists a whole lot of different types of or different terms within uh, the gender space, and a, a lot of discussion around addressing power imbalances and the ubiquity of patriarchy. And at the same time, looking at feminist work uh, and recognizing that feminism has also itself been heavily critiqued uh, across the years by uh, indigenous black people of color is putting the interests of white feminists first uh, and that it is a very kind of white exercise that has often walked over um, rather than alongside or being led by um, the voices of indigenous uh, black women of color. From a Māori perspective, what, what are your thoughts on that? It rings true for my admitted, admittedly limited understanding of how things developed here in Aotearoa, where we hear a lot about the suffrage movement here in Aotearoa, and I don't have enough details to speak about it in, in, in length, and I know that the suffrage movement in here was not a safe or welcoming space for wahine Māori, and even the, the comms around women's voting right negates to mention fails to mention that pre-colonization wahine maori were politically culturally and socially leaders and you know because it wasn't democracy because we didn't have a voting system in a in a colonial way in a way that seemed relevant from through a colonial lens it was disregarded but we were matriarchal many of our hapu were matriarchal and so I think those are some of the things that felt missing from our perspective here in Aotearoa, as I understand it. I keep giving disclaimers because I'm always really open to hearing from people if they know stuff that I don't yet know, because I know that I don't know everything. But from what I do know, yeah, those are some missings. I do know that uh, Nanai Mahuta, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, has has commented in her role currently, but also in previous roles, when talking about the, I guess, the mana of wahine, she said, and I'm quoting her here, mana of wahine not defined by Western feminist thinking, but the values that have long underpinned our culture, histories, and traditions. I mean, how do you, what do you see as the, uh, the foundations of uh, mana wahine language or you know what does that look like for you and is, um, is it different from feminism even the even the idea of manawahine I'm not sure if that's a traditional concept I don't know that we used to talk about us our own mana or others mana or collective mana in the way that we do now and I think you know I'm I don't know the full context for what Nanaya was referring to and I and I know that speaking about things like mana wahine is often used as a Maori way of talking about feminism my question around that and I don't have the answer is around where, where did the concept of mana wahine come from mm -hmm. using mana wahine feels like a modern response to feminism and I'm and I could be wrong again I'm open to being wrong on that mm. I think 
uh, lots of things happened around colonization that really changed the way that wahine were regarded in the broader society and then our tāne and some of our social and cultural structures adapted to to suit that and so I don't think we needed something like mana wahine traditionally because our, our cultural and social structures understood the sacred nature of humans as opposed to wahine tāne tamariki. I know that in much of my work in Canada, for example, in working with First Nations, uh, Métis and Inuit colleagues, um, you know, the notion of gender itself was seen as a, seen as a colonizing term in light of the, I guess, kind of gender fluid, but also gender balance that was that was dislocated through the process of, of colonialism and um, how that in itself is to some extent a, a very loaded conversation because there's a lot, there's a lot in that. I want to turn to perhaps looking at LGBTQI plus. There's a, a section on, you know, uh, language and words that, that sit comfortably and some that don't sit comfortably. What kind of language or words might be helpful within Ta'o Māori that, that represents some of those concepts? Oh, this is, I feel like this is a wānanga that needs to happen within Te Ao Māori with our, with our queer community and with our queer real speaking community to develop some of this real, if that feels like something that community um, would like as part of their expression of their identity using te reo Māori. I know that takatāpui is a term that's often used as a uh, sort of an umbrella for queer in te reo Māori. And then other concepts like non-binary and transgender, they're not things that we have traditional words for. And so te reo Māori speakers are, are working to create language around them, but I think that it's something that could do with some deliberate attention and wānanga, and I haven't yet seen something like that be, be called uh, in terms of a wānanga being organised, but I don't want to speak on behalf of the queer Māori community and, and make stuff up. Fair enough. Completely understood. Just, I guess, we're coming to perhaps a, a conclusion um, in terms of time that we've taken. Just want to circle back a bit to some of the words that are very common in the international development space and that I've, I've also seen some pushback on. So the words global south, I don't know if you've encountered those words, uh, terms before in terms of referring to the global north, often the wealthy nations of the world, often the colonizer nations of the world. Um, and those two things are obviously very connected. And then global south often being those communities that are not as income rich and that often have been colonized. Any thoughts on those terms? I think if they are helpful for holding power to account, great. I don't really have much more attachment to them than that. I don't feel, you know, for us, one of the Maori perspectives of, of Aotearoa and Te Waipaunamu is that Stewart Island or Rakiura is is at the top mm -hmm. and Te Taitokero or Te Hiku or Te Ika is at the bottom. So the, you know, we orientate ourselves differently and in terms of the, the global north and global south, if, if that's helpful to mm -hmm. find a more equ equitable distribution of wealth, mm -hmm. right. I think um, Aotearoa is often lumped into the uh, global north countries. And I know in some conversations that I've had that many feel uncomfortable about that, not just because of perhaps the, the geographical parameters that 
that can be uh, that are often contextual, but you know that we are at the very bottom of the so-called southern hemisphere, but that also we are not to be lumped into that group of uh, wealthy countries that are colonizers, and that that completely dismisses Maori perspectives and Maori uh, worlds and history on these lands. I don't know if that resonates in any way. Hmm. Does it have to be one or the other? Can it be? No. And and perhaps the binary is what is also a, a colonial mental construct too. So, mm. I mean, the yeah, the reality for for many non Maori in Aotearoa is one of intergenerational wealth. Again, mm-hmm. stolen Indigenous land. So to that extent, I can see the the connection and the Maori experience, the Indigenous experience, is very different. And I think we can acknowledge that as well. My final question to you is, do you have any practical tips that you could give to those working in the international development space or for communications people who want to be more inclusive in their language here in Aotearoa? Some tips would be consider, before before putting anything out, consider how you will respond when, not if, there is negative response to it naivety isn't encouraged (laughs) and there's some really great examples from some really big organizations and their responses to people who who are negative around their use of te reo maori so I think that would be something and to think about how do you keep your staff safe mentally and emotionally and culturally so that they're not picking up the check for what was an organizational decision, but we leave it up to individuals to kind of carry the load of it. So that could look like resources, allocating resources to support frontline staff who might, you know, be dealing with people who are annoyed that you're using Maori words, you know. Mm. And I'm sure Oxfam Aotearoa could share some tips around uh, how you navigated that change of name space. And I know that that wasn't mm-hmm. a universally appreciated process that you went through there. And then in terms of actual content, I would encourage people to engage with experts around if, when, and how to integrate Te Reo Māori into comms and into what you're doing. My Maybe my final analogy for our corridor here is one of caution around putting Māori curtains on a Pākehā house or putting Māori curtains on a non-Māori house. And if we you if you're looking to use te reo Māori as window dressing and not looking at how to make structural change, then there should be some alarm bells ringing and it's probably time to yeah, call in some support to understand how te reo Māori fits as part of a, a bigger picture for your organization. And I might just add, and to pay for that support and not expect it to be given mm-hmm. how often. Um it's you know it's requested and without recognizing that that is also an investment in in inclusion it doesn't always flow and I think there's a lot to be done in seeing colleagues also kind of expecting to be told what they should or should think or say or do and I think that negates one's own personal journey of self-reflection and uncovering one's own biases etc regardless of I suppose heritage and so on. Definitely, definitely don't ask your Maori staff member for them to to do this for you. Many I've I've cleaned up many a many a mess there where really well intentioned Maori staff have done the best that they can in really difficult circumstances, being asked to translate documents or provide karakia or you know we're doing our strategic plan and we'd like to 
you know, some funding that we're going to apply for would like us to make sure that it, there's some Te Reo in there. Can you <laughs> chuck, a, chuck a word or two in the mix, you know, and it's, um, it, it really shows, it shows who does this intentionally with, with good intention and who does it for window dressing. Kia ora, Ariana. Are there any final things that you'd want to say or? I think if I can refer back to the intro that you offered, Angela, around the criticism of this kind of conversation, that it's the woke brigade or PC gone mad, what we're talking about is some some equity, some equitable outcomes, some is using language in a way that isn't harmful if there are people within your organization or within your family or within your 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 circles that you're moving within who find that abhorrent who or who who are enraged by that and aren't interested in a conversation about where that outrage comes from then it might be time to find some new friends I don't know if that's <laughs> I don't know if that's a bit grim to end it there I really appreciate the opportunity to share some cordial with you and hopefully there's something of interest or use for people who are listening if they if they want to get in touch with Real Māori Mai then yeah, you can find us uh, on our on our website. There's a contact form, delmaldimai.co.nz. And yeah, really appreciate the opportunity. Tēnā koe. koe. Ariana, thank you so much um, for all of your insights and wisdom. Um, in terms of the Inclusive Language Guide, it's easy to find if you just Google Oxfam Inclusive Language Guide and it's there, recognizing it's an Oxfam international publication and we here at Oxfam Aotearoa as a separate organization but connected to the Oxfam Confederation you know we're putting in some thought around what that looks like here in Aotearoa and this conversation with you has been you know a really important part of that so thank you Ariana for for your contributions and with that I think we'll conclude thank you so much thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.